We are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. So as you came in, there's a table in the back on both sides. If you need the elements for the Lord's Supper, we're not going to be passing those out. Uh, You are more than welcome to hop up. You're not going to bother anybody. Hop up, make your way to the back, pick those up. Uh, We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of the sermon. There are notes in the bulletin where you can track along with the passage this morning. If you have a Bible, open it to Mark chapter 14, verse 12 to 25. Mark 14, 12 to 25. At the outset, I want to acknowledge that there are some academic questions of chronology that surround this passage. There are some questions that people ask and wrestle with and argue about in terms of when these things happened and what the calendar was on this day or that day. And I really don't intend to get into any of those questions. I'm aware of those issues. If you want to argue about those issues, I'm happy to argue about those issues or talk to you friendly about those issues. I can point you to references that might help clarify some of those issues. But we're not going to deal with any of those things uh, particularly this morning. There are more important things in this passage to wrestle with. And I want to say a few things at the outset that I think will help set the stage for what we're going to say as we work through this particular passage. I want you to know that Jesus, in his final week on earth, spent most of his time between two cities, Bethany and Jerusalem. As you read through the Gospels, it seems that he was spending the night and he was eating dinner in Bethany. That's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived, and it seems that he's staying with them in Bethany just a few miles from Jerusalem. But during the day in this final week, he's, he's walking over to Jerusalem every day. He's teaching in the temple pre- precincts. Uh, he's flipping over tables and clearing the temple. He's doing all sorts of things in Jerusalem. And then he's going out in the evening time, and he's sleeping in Bethany. When it comes time for the Passover, there were rules that stipulated you had to be in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so that's why we see in this passage that Jesus and his disciples will make their way into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, uh, this last Passover that he will celebrate. Our passage, Mark 14, 12 to 25, is often called the story of the Last Supper. In fact, if your Bible has section headings, that's probably the section heading that's right above it, is this is known as the Last Supper. Leonardo da Vinci painted a very famous painting titled The Last Supper. And I put this up on the screen. You know this painting. You've seen this painting. It's uh, very, very famous. There are all sorts of spoofs on this painting where the characters are exchanged for other people and they're put in this same pose or posture. One of the most famous works of art of all time. I don't show it to you so that you have an image of what this evening looked like. I show it to you because you've seen this painting and you've already got this image in your brain. And what I'm saying to you is you need to scrub it because it didn't look like this. There's a couple of things that were a little bit different just to to mention a few things. The table that they sat at would not have been one long buffet table where you sort of have to lean forward and see who's sitting at the end and all the guys are sitting on one side of the table nicely for a pose and a photo. But it would have been a U-shaped table in a small room, a table with three sides, shaped like a U, 
And there would have been uh, rules and regulations governing who sat where, who was where. And even that word I just used, sat, is not exactly accurate because no one would have been sitting. They would have been all sort of laying on their side, laying on their stomach. Their heads would have been towards the middle of this table. Their feet would have been sticking out behind them. They would have been laying on sort of pillows, cushions, and there would be a very low table in front of them. This U-shaped table allowed somebody, maybe one of the apostles at different times, maybe Jesus at times, to make their way into the middle and to sort of serve the people who were sitting around this particular table. So don't have this image in your mind when you read about this story, the Last Supper. When you open the scriptures, you'll find this story in four places. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, that means the gospels that see the story the same. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include this. John tells us a lot about this evening, but he doesn't include what we would call the Last Supper. And then when you go to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul doesn't exactly tell the story, but he includes a lot of information from this story. And so we'll include it as a fourth source of this story that we know as the Last Supper. One of the things I want you to see this morning is that the the name, the title, the Last Supper, may not be the best way to describe this incident. It may be better to call this incident, this story, the First Supper. We'll circle back to that in just a moment. What we usually call this when we celebrate this story in our church is the Lord's Supper. In fact, that's what I said just a moment ago. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. The earliest Christians, if you go back and look historically, called this celebration the Eucharist. It means thanksgiving. And they were acknowledging that when they went to the Lord's table, when they took the bread and they took the cup, that they were giving thanks to God for what Jesus had accomplished on their behalf. And so they would say, hey, this morning at church, we're going to celebrate the Eucharist. There are other faith traditions that usually use the word communion. It has the idea of participation and fellowship. Typically in a Baptist tradition, we talk about celebrating the Lord's Supper. So that's what we're going to talk about in this passage this morning. I want to make one note before we get to the big idea and read this text. The upper room. They celebrate this meal in an upper room. It's likely prearranged by Jesus, just like the donkey that he rode into Jerusalem a week earlier. So we'll read in a moment that he sends the disciples into the city, into Jerusalem. He sends two of them, and he says, hey, look for a man carrying a pitcher of water. Now, as Americans living on the other side of the world 2,000 years later, we look at those instructions and we say, how was that helpful? There were probably lots of guys walking around town carrying pitchers of water. How would they know which one to find? It's actually a pretty good marker or identification mark because in Jewish culture in this day, men carried water in skins and women would carry water in jars or pitchers. And you say, what does that have to do with men or women? I have no idea. That's just what they did. You and I do all sorts of things culturally, customs, things that we don't ever think about. But for a a couple of disciples to walk into Jerusalem and to see a man carrying a jar of water would have been an unusual thing. And it was the sign that Jesus had prearranged so that they could meet up with this guy and they could go to this upper room that Jesus had prepared. Now, all of that's on the table. 
Let's talk about the big idea of this passage. We have sung about it already. The big idea of this story is that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the Lamb of God. And His death established the new covenant between God and His people. Jesus is the Lamb of God. And in His death, He established a new covenant, a new relationship between God and His people. If you want to flip through the Scriptures on your own and read about this idea of a Lamb... Let me just give you a few places that you might look. You might look at Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham, obeying the Lord, takes his son Isaac up Mount Moriah, the very same mountain range where Jerusalem was located. And at the last moment, the Lord God provides an animal, a ram, caught in the thicket. And the ram became the sacrifice so that Isaac could live and Abraham and Isaac could go home together. The Jewish people, after that moment, would look to these mountains and they would say, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. What will be provided? The lamb will be provided. You could fast forward and you could look at Exodus 12, which we're going to talk about this morning. The Jewish people celebrating the very first Passover. God told his people, take a lamb from the sheep or from the goats, young, and slaughter it and smear the blood on the doorpost so that death might pass over you even as judgment falls on the Egyptians. The lamb died so that the people could live. You might look at Isaiah 53, which we will talk about this morning. And Isaiah 53 is talking about the suffering servant And it says that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. When Isaiah says that, that the suffering servant would be led like a lamb to the slaughter, you're to think about all these examples of these lambs in the Old Testament. And it all leads up to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, when John the Baptist sees Jesus walking and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of that imagery and all of those ideas, all of those things that the people had been hoping for and praying about finds its culmination in this passage where Jesus, the Lamb of God, is going to die. He's going to talk about His death here. He's going to die to establish a new covenant, a new relationship between God and His people. So, take your copy of the Scriptures. I'm going to read this passage and you are welcome to follow along as I read out loud. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 12, the Word of God says this, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve 
And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve who is dipping bread in the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are grateful uh, as a church to talk to you and to gather freely and without concern. We think of our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world who are not as fortunate this morning. We ask that you would be with them. Father, this morning as we have sung and as we've prayed, as we've celebrated a baptism, as we open your word, and in just a moment as we take the Lord's Supper together, our desire is that your word would be powerful in our lives, that we would see the truth about Jesus, we would believe, and we would give thanks. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to talk to you about American holidays. You know there are a lot of holidays in American life, American culture, where many Americans, if not most Americans, prepare for that holiday in basically the exact same way. And I'll just give you two examples of what I'm talking about. Think about the 4th of July. When the 4th of July rolls around, many Americans say, hey, I want to celebrate this. Uh, We're going to have a 4th of July cookout. We're going to have hot dogs. We're going to have hamburgers. We're going to grill steaks. We're going to put whatever we want to eat on the grill. You take your last paycheck and you just give it to the fireworks guy and you say, give me all the stuff that I can blow up and I can't wait to make these things, you know, light up the sky. And you get your old ratty American t-shirt out, the one you pull out once a year and you play Lee Greenwood all week long and you walk around humming the national anthem and it's the 4th of July and you just sort of, we all celebrate in very, very similar ways. Something similar is true of Thanksgiving. When Thanksgiving rolls around, most Americans, not all, but most Americans have a very similar experience of Thanksgiving, and you expect this. We eat Thanksgiving lunch as a church together the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and when you show up to that lunch, you don't get in the line down the hall and say, do you think they're going to cook fajitas this year? No, we cook fajitas in September, We have Thanksgiving at Thanksgiving. And so when you get in line, you say, I smell turkey. If you're like me, you say, I don't want any of that turkey, but give me some ham. I want to go to Larry's Specialty Meats and get a honey-glazed ham. I want to have ham. All the casseroles, all the stuffing, all the fixings, all the stuff you love, pecan pie, uh, pumpkin pie, whatever your favorite thing is. For many Americans, 
Thanksgiving looks very, very similar. What I want you to understand is that for first century Jews, celebrating the Passover was a big deal. And it was not the kind of celebration where each family sort of huddled up and said, well, we want to celebrate the Passover this way. Well, this is our Passover tradition. Well, I know that you do Passover this way, but here's how we celebrate. There was none of that. There was one way that you celebrated the Passover. And you need to understand this because what Jesus is doing in this passage is he's celebrating the Passover with his disciples. So, the whole thing started on a set day. Not a set day of the week, but a set number day. The 14th of Nisan. Usually in March or April, in the spring. 14th of Nisan. The people were told to take a lamb... And to slaughter that lamb at twilight. They were to take the lamb, slaughter it at twilight. Then they were to take it home and they were to roast it. They were to roast it whole. And they were to eat the whole thing that night at the Passover celebration. By the time they actually ate the meal, the sun had gone down. Which meant in Jewish reckoning, it was now the 15th of Nisan. And there was all sorts of things that were supposed to happen at that meal. All sorts of preparations that were supposed to be made. For example, there was to be a ceremonial removal of all leaven from the house. You can go back and read about the reason for this in the book of Exodus, but you had to get all the leaven out of the house. And when I say ceremonial, I don't mean you go to the spice cabinet and you take the leaven out and you go out in the backyard and you put it out there in the backyard for the the evening. You did that. You literally took the leaven out of the house. But then you made sure there was no leaven. So you went to your kids and you said, did you look under your bed for leaven? I know you got a bunch of toys under there. Drag the toys out and make sure you didn't actually accidentally stash some leaven under there. And you pull the couch cushions up and you look in the couch cushions and you say, any leaven in there? I don't see any leaven in there. And you sort through the refrigerator and you sort through your, your uh, drawer that has your toothpaste and your toothbrush and all the weird places in your house where it could be. You look in all of those places and you say, all the leaven is out. And in the meal, the menu was set. The lamb was the main course. You were to eat, not surprisingly, unleavened bread. There was crushed fruit. There were bitter herbs. There was wine that was drank at this meal. All these things had important symbolism as the people had this Passover meal. And it was a structured meal. It was a four-course meal. Not like salad, then soup, then main entree, then dessert. But there were four courses, four stages to this meal, and they corresponded to four passing around of the cup. The cup. And these four stages and these four cups that were passed around corresponded to Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. If you look at that passage later, later, you'll find four promises from God to his people about how he was going to save them from slavery in Egypt. He's going to rescue them, he's going to free them from their slavery, he's going to redeem them, and he's going to renew a relationship with them. Four promises, four cups, four stages of the meal, all of it symbolic. And throughout the years as the Jewish people celebrated this meal, they were looking back and they were remembering what God had done for his people in Egypt 
what they didn't realize is all the way back to the first Passover in Egypt and all the other Passovers they celebrated, right up to this Passover that Jesus celebrated with his disciples. What they didn't realize is that when Jesus would celebrate this Passover meal with his disciples, Scripture would be fulfilled. All of those Old Testament ideas and commands were actually pointing forward to something even greater than what happened in Egypt. So I want to start off with this question and answer. How do you see Scripture fulfilled in this story? The first one is exactly what we just talked about. It's the Passover celebration itself. The Passover is fulfilled in Jesus having this dinner with his disciples. Now, for people who live when we live and where we live, for you and me, it's hard for us to understand how big a deal this was. It's just really hard to wrap your mind around it. For millennia, the Jewish people celebrated the Passover, and in their brain they said, we are remembering what happened back there. What if this 4th of July, as you're grilling out, and you're about to blow up all your fireworks, your paycheck's about to go up in flames, and you're going to have watermelon or whatever you like to eat on 4th of July. What if I came to your celebration and I said to you, hey, all this 4th of July stuff, it really has very little to do with what happened in this country in the 1700s. It's really not that much about the Declaration of Independence and the Founding Fathers and the Revolutionary War. It's really not about all that stuff. It's actually about something that's going to happen tonight. You just didn't know it. It's not really most basically a look back, but it's a look forward. That's what is happening as Jesus celebrates this Passover with his disciples. He's been eager to celebrate this, this dinner with the disciples. But when he starts to talk about a new covenant, what he's saying is, the Passover is not just about what God did in Egypt. It's mostly about what God is going to do through his son. All these years you thought it was just to look back, but all these years it's been looking forward to its true fulfillment, which is Jesus. So, how do we see scripture fulfilled in this story? Number two, in the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus is promised in the Old Testament. Look what Jesus says in verse 21. He says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. And if you like to make notes, Written is a word that you ought to circle in your Bible. As it is written of him. Not written in the newspaper, not written on Facebook, not written on a blog. Written in the Hebrew Scriptures. That's a technical term saying to Jewish people, the Scriptures write about the death of Jesus. And when Jesus says the Son of Man goes as it's written of him, he is going to the cross. He's going to die. And Jesus' perspective on that is this is the plan. This is what God has promised. Now, I could take you through the Old Testament. We could look for all sorts of verses that might point us forward. Which verse is Jesus thinking about when he says that it's written that the Son of Man would die? I think the verse that's probably at the forefront of his mind is Isaiah 52, verse 13 to chapter 53, verse 12. 
That passage in Isaiah 52 and 53, I'm telling you, is the most important. It is the greatest messianic prophecy in all of the Old Testament. Now, I understand that's somewhat subjective when you start to say something is the greatest. Americans argue about this all the time. Who is the greatest? What is the greatest? What is the goat? The greatest of all time. Who is the goat? People argue about this as I looked up the, the painting from Da Vinci of the Last Supper. People argue about this. People online. What is the greatest painting of all time? Not many people think it's the Last Supper, but many people think it's the Mona Lisa. People look at that work of art and they say that is the single greatest painting that anyone has ever painted in the history of painting. It's the greatest. You may look at it and agree. You may look at it and say, I don't see what the big deal is. She doesn't even have eyebrows. I don't know. I don't get it. How can it be the greatest? We argue about this in sports all the time. Jake and I like to argue. We argue about the NBA. The NBA had an all-star game recently. It's the 75th anniversary of the NBA, and so they had all these smart writers. They did not ask Jake or I for our vote. They had all these smart writers vote on who are the 75 greatest NBA players of all time. And at halftime of this game, all the guys on this list who were living, they marched them out and they brought them out to center court and they got applauded and all that sort of stuff. Somebody needs to tell Jake, he's looking at this list right now. Luca is not on this list yet. Jake would say, Luca belongs on that list. He's not there yet. Maybe he'll get there someday. But people argue about this. And realistically... There's about five, six names on that list that people say that's the greatest NBA player of all time. Maybe you think it was Bill Russell. Maybe you think it was LeBron James. Maybe you think it's Michael Jordan. Maybe you think it's Kareem or Wilt or who knows. But people argue about this. What I'm saying to you is that when you read through the Old Testament and you read all of the promises and prophecies about Jesus and his death, the greatest one, and I'm not even sure it's debatable, is Isaiah 52 to 53. Talks about the suffering servant who would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. The father would crush him. It is the will of the Lord to crush him, this lamb, because he bears our iniquities. Isaiah writes it hundreds of years before Jesus dies on the cross in Jerusalem. And I think it's what Jesus is thinking about when he says, the Son of Man goes as it's written about him. He's going to die and he knows that his death is the fulfillment of Scripture. Thirdly, how do you see Scripture fulfilled in this story? You see it in the betrayal of Judas. We won't spend much time here. But you might notice that in verse 21, not only does he say the Son of Man goes that is written of him, but he also says, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Woe to that man. When you read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you add it all, all up together, you understand that Judas betraying Jesus was not an example of things spiraling out of control, but it was actually the fulfillment of Scripture. It's hard to take in, 
But one of those scriptures that Jesus might have in mind as he thinks about Judas and his betrayal is Psalm 41, verse 9. King David wrote Psalm 41, verse 9, and he says in that chapter, King David, that he was betrayed by a close friend and a trusted advisor and somebody who broke bread with him. And he says, this person turned on me and they betrayed me. And he's lamenting what happened. In the fullness of time, we read this gospel account and we read that Jesus, the son of David, the true king of Israel, is betrayed by a close friend, a trusted advisor, somebody who actually was the treasurer of this small group of disciples. Somebody who broke bread with him. He was betrayed. And it wasn't just things spiraling out of control. It wasn't just an example of a bad thing happening to a good person. It was actually the fulfillment of Scripture. So in this story, Scripture is being fulfilled. I mentioned earlier that it's often called the Last Supper. I think it might be more fitting to call it the First Supper. Because after this moment, Christian practice changed almost on a dime. Very quickly, Christian people stopped celebrating the Passover. Some of you may have gone to a a Passover celebration, a Jewish Seder at some point, but most of you have probably not done that. And even those of you who have done it probably don't do it every year. It's not something that Christians have continued to practice, but what Christians immediately started doing is observing and celebrating this Lord's Supper. So in a sense, this isn't just the last Supper, but it's really the first supper. And this morning, before we take the Lord's Supper together, I just want you to think about what is it that we do when we, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, take the Lord's Supper? What are we doing when we take the bread and we drink from the cup? Let me give you a few answers from this passage. Number one, we're examining the condition of our heart. So when you take the Lord's Supper, you ought to examine the condition of your heart. I want you to notice the question in verse 19. Jesus has said, one of you will betray me. And what I would expect to happen after Jesus says that is for the disciples who have a hard time keeping their mouth shut to look around the room and to say, one of us, one of us. Judas, right? It's got to be Judas. I don't think it's going to be Bartholomew. I don't think it's going to be Thomas. I don't think it's going to be Matt. It's got to be Judas, right? They don't do that. Nobody points the finger at Judas. In fact, they all point the finger at themselves. And one by one, they go around the table and they say, Is it me? Is it me? Is it I? Twelve times. There's reflection taking place in their hearts in this moment. Am I the one that's going to do this thing? Now listen, when we take the Lord's Supper, I don't want you to sort of spiritually navel gaze and say, am I going to betray Jesus tomorrow? I don't want you to be fearful about your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're part of the new covenant, you have great reason to be hopeful and optimistic and encouraged about your relationship with the Lord. And I don't think that Jesus would have you fret and worry and be anxious 
about whether or not you are truly a believer. I think there's reasons in the Bible given to give us hope and assurance and encouragement. But I also know that the Bible calls us to examine ourselves. American Christians, I don't think, are very good at this. Paul tells the church in Corinth, examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the Lord. As he gives them instructions about the Lord's Supper, he says you should not take of this meal in an unworthy way, but you should examine yourself. Can I tell you what you don't need to examine? You don't need to examine whether or not you're a sinner. I can save you that step. You are and I am. You don't need to examine, have I been good enough in the last week to take the Lord's Supper? Because I can save you that step too. You haven't and I haven't. The Lord's Supper is not about whether or not you're a sinner and it's not whether or not you've been pretty good on average over the last whatever period of time. The Lord's Supper, when you examine yourself, is a question of how do I feel about my sin? Am I justifying it? Or am I broken over it? Do I try to explain it away as if it's no big deal? Do I make excuses for it? Or do I acknowledge it before God with a broken heart? The question is not, are you a sinner? The question is, are you repenting of sin? Are you turning from sin? And are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the question you examine yourself on when you take the Lord's Supper. How do I feel about my sin? And am I trusting in the finished work of Jesus? His body broken for me. His blood shed for me. To establish this new covenant, this new relationship. You examine yourself. Corey preached on Wednesday, for those of you who were here. He preached on the passage right before ours, Mark 14, 1 to 11. And I thought he made a great point just thinking about this question of examining ourselves. He made the point, and I'm circling back to Judas. Judas had everybody fooled. Nobody instinctively pointed the finger at him. He had everyone fooled. It wasn't hard to do. And I'll be honest, it's not hard for you to do either. It's not hard to fool the people in this room about your spiritual state. It's not hard to fool a spouse or a parent or a child. It's not hard to fool the people you sit with in Sunday school or the people you always sit by when you come into this room. It's not hard at all to to fool your online digital community of friends on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. It's not hard to fool people when it comes to your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But do you know who the one person is that you won't fool? It's Jesus. Judas didn't fool him, not for a second. Scripture says that Jesus knew from the beginning who it was that would betray him. He understood that it was the fulfillment of Scripture. It didn't catch him off guard. You're not going to fool Jesus. You can fool me. You can come and be in the right place at the right time with the right people and say all the right things. And you can fool us. 
but you do not fool the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you come to the Lord's table, it's worth reminding yourself of that truth. It's worth me reminding myself of that truth. And it's worth examining ourselves before we come to the Lord's table. Secondly, what's involved in taking the Lord's Supper? We remember Jesus' sacrificial death. We're looking back and we're remembering. The Bible is literally filled with examples of God telling His people to remember. Remember. You need to remember this. And more often than not, they don't remember and they forget. They forget who God is and they forget what God has done for His people. And yet He keeps sending prophets. And the job of the prophets is to say, hey, don't forget. You've got to remember who God is and you've got to remember what He's done for His people. That's what we're doing in the Lord's Supper. We are remembering what Jesus has done for us. Something that we do not, did not, will not, cannot deserve. An act of grace where Jesus laid down his life for his people. We remember when we take the bread. We remember that in his body he bore our sins. We remember that the one who knew no sin became sin for us. When we take of the cup, we remember that Jesus shed his blood. He gave his life that we might have life. Peter talks about this. In the letter of 1 Peter. And we read these verses often when we take the Lord's Supper. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. When you take of the bread, that's what you remember. He carried my sin when he died on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Peter talks about the blood of Jesus. He says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. When we take of the bread and we take of the cup, and we read Jesus saying, this is my body, This is my blood. We don't think there's anything magical or mysterious or mystical happening. That those things are actually being changed into the body and blood of Christ. We understand he's using a a picture. He's using an image. He's using metaphorical language. Just like when he says to his disciples, I'm the door. I'm the vine. I'm the good shepherd. He's teaching them and he's teaching us here. He's helping us to remember that in His body He carried our sins and with His blood He redeemed us from our sins. So we remember His sacrificial death. Thirdly, what's involved in taking the Lord's Supper? We proclaim the Lord's death until He returns. Look at Mark 14 verse 25. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is a beautiful way to frame the gospel of Mark. Some of you were here a few weeks ago. We looked at Mark chapter 1. You might just flip over. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus says, at the very beginning of his ministry, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom has come. It's here. 
With the person of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has come. And now in Mark 14, we read this verse that says the kingdom is coming in the future. And we talked about this. This is the mystery of the kingdom of God. It has come and it is coming. It's already here and it's not yet here. You can enter it today and be part of it now. And yet you still wait for it and long for it in the future. This is the origin story, the gospel of Mark, the gospel accounts. It's the origin story of our kingdom. And when I say our kingdom, I'm not talking about the United States of America. I'm talking about a far greater kingdom, a far more important kingdom. I'll celebrate the 4th this summer. Blow stuff up. Play Lee Greenwood. Wear my red, white, and blue. But this is a greater kingdom. It's our true home. And this is where it begins with the coming of the king. At the outset of his ministry, he said, the kingdom of God has come. And at the very end of his life on earth, he said, one day in the kingdom, we'll eat this meal together. This is the origin story of our kingdom. Every kingdom, every nation has an origin story. The United States has an origin story. It's the 4th of July. It's the Declaration of Independence. It's the Revolutionary War. It's the Founding Fathers. It's all of that stuff. It's our our origin story. There's a war being waged on the other side of the world right now. And in part, not in whole, but in part, it stems from a disagreement about the origins of kingdoms. One group of people say, we have our own beginning as a people. We are our own people. And this other group of people looks and says, no, you're our people. We're your people, and that's our land, and you're part of us. And they're fighting a horrific war, even as we speak. Every kingdom has an origin story. This is ours. It's the gospel. The king has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. And the kingdom of God is coming. We look for it. We wait for it. The book of Revelation makes this promise. Revelation eleven fifteen. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. When that scripture is fulfilled in the future, what Jesus is saying is that He will sit down with His people in that kingdom and He will eat and He will drink. The king with His people in His kingdom. And you know the beautiful thing about the Lord's Supper? When you celebrate the Lord's Supper, whether you stand on this stage and do it or you sit in that chair and do it, when you celebrate the Lord's Supper, you are proclaiming the death of Jesus and the coming of His kingdom until He comes back. You may never in your life preach a sermon, lead a Bible study, teach a Sunday school class. But the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 11, when you take of the Lord's Supper, when you celebrate the Eucharist, when you participate in communion, you are proclaiming the death of Jesus until He comes back. This is what we're doing this morning. We start by examining our hearts. Not to ask whether or not we're sinful people, but to ask whether we're repentant people and we're believing people we look back and we remember what Jesus has done for us 
He gave himself. He died as a sacrifice. And we look back and remember that. And we look forward and proclaim that we believe he's coming back. That the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of the Christ. And when that happens, we will eat with him and drink with him in his kingdom. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and you've obeyed his command to be baptized, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to examine yourself. It's not a a time where you're supposed to work up fear or false emotions, but it's just an honest moment for examination. To ask yourself, how do I feel about my sin? Am I repenting of it and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? And it's an opportunity for you to look back and to remember what Jesus has done for us, and it's an opportunity for you to look forward in faith to the day when Jesus returns.